And we are back, or and sorry, and we are live with another episode of Absolute Absec. I'm Ken Johnson at CK Tricky on Twitter. Join me my co-host Seth Law at Seth Law on Twitter. Seth, say hi. Hey, everybody, welcome back. Uh, this is our 105th episode. Uh, we've been going for a while now, um, but we're really excited about today's conversation. We have Laura on. Um, Ken will do introductions here shortly. Um, but I just had a couple of items. I think the main thing is that we are doing the secure coding course at uh, Global AppSec San Francisco. Um, and I'm pretty sure that's gonna be a virtual event later in October timeframe sometime. So if you haven't had a chance to jump on or you want to participate in our, in Seth and Ken's excellent adventures in secure code review, uh, please watch out or watch the Twitters, watch everything else, and, and we'll we'll send out links for registration and everything else shortly. Um, outside of that, I don't really have a, a lot this week to to talk through. Uh, we were obviously we were off last week. We had leave a couple weeks ago, um, but there there's a lot of things going on as it is. So um, today's episode is going to be a little bit different. Uh, and um, I think as Laura gets into it and you know we introduce her, you'll understand why. I, we're gonna take a little bit of a step back from a pure technical review of application security things to talk about some of the larger issues that we're dealing with as a community. And we're excited to have Laura on to talk about that. So uh, Ken, do you wanna introduce Laura and we'll, we'll jump right into it? Yeah, so um, Laura, we were, Basically, we were, um, wait, am I not? Uh, we've got too many screens going on. So uh, Adam Migas introduced us. Um, and basically, the background here is that um, I think it was like a few weeks ago on Twitter, there was, uh, there was a big discussion on diversity and inclusion. And we'll get into it. Uh, there were a lot of things that were covered, but it was by people that weren't necessarily experts. Like being honest, it's just security people that kind of like, have a an opinion about it, which is totally fine. But we recognize we're not experts. Um, so we asked Laura on the show, who is an expert and is cur currently, um, I want to make sure I get this right. Uh, you are a executive or a director, executive director at uh, Children Association of Children's Museums. I, I don't know what's going on. I'm sorry, Seth, today. I'm so tongue tied. It's fine. It's super know. professional, right? Yeah, <laughs> my brain is, is that correct, Laura? <laughs> That's correct. Yeah, I'm the executive director at the Association of Children's Museums. Okay. Yeah, and it looks like you've, I mean, just looking at your background, I mean, you've been a, a director of professional development and inclusion initiatives. It's, it seems like this is, you know, I went through your, your history. This seems like, you know, you you really are way better positioned to discuss the, this topic than than we are. So uh, thank you for, for coming on, Laura. Um, do you mind, like, but expanding on your background and just yeah. telling people a little bit about yourself. Yeah, sure. Thanks. Um, I, let's see. I, I think that I'd like to say that I am less of a an expert in the topic as much as more of being an expert in having these conversations. Um, you know, uh, just being who I am and where I come from um, as a woman of color, uh, this has been my entire life you know, talking about um, inclusion and representation. And, um, 
you know, really started as a very young person and managed to find um, ways to grow my skills as a professional um, out in the professional world. So um, I've been primarily always, well, always doing really equity work um, as a professional um, here in the DC area, starting in the education sector. My mom was a bilingual education teacher. And so that gave me a lot of grounding and life experience and what it's like to be a, a kid in a family that really needs um, a different kind of supports to succeed in, in our society. Um, and how important that is. Um, and so, you know, started in, in the education field and then um, has I've been moving around the nonprofit sector, mostly in the museum sector, but I also had some time um, really focusing on inclusion works um, wholly when I was at the National Multicultural Institute as a program manager there. So, you know, it's really professionally been about um, 20 years worth of professional experience thinking about diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility um, in my life. So hopefully I have some things to say about it. And a lot is a lot of the conversation has changed in 20 years. And I think oh, I'm sure. we're in a really special time right now where uh, I think a lot of stuff that has been sort of simmering in our country as we've been moving, moving through it, is coming to this uh, a boil and um i think actually in a really good way and we can talk more about that it's good and uncomfortable at the same time yeah but um but that's also the work um and so it's a really uh if you're somebody who's been th paying attention to this and really active in thinking about equity in our country um this is a really exciting time <laughs> Yeah. Um, and I, you know, I hope that that's part of the way we can have this conversation, uh, as well and invite people who are listening that it is unsettling, but unsettling can be scary, um, and exciting and, and a little bit of fear is part of excitement too. So, um, you know, that's sort of the place that I come to all of this from. Yeah. And yeah, that's great, right? Like, it, I, I did want to give a little a bit of background to the users about like why why we wanted to talk to you, right? Um, so I, I don't, you know, Ken alluded to it that there was a lot going on in you know in the technology space as far as namings of things, right? And just making sure that people feel included based on the language that we use to reference, you know reference an attack versus, you know, an, you know, normal traffic, right? That kind of thing. I mean, I, I think the most um, glaring example that's popped up and that's been argued about on Twitter has been uh, whitelist versus blacklist, right? That, that, that's the first one. And, and to be honest, as you know, you know, as a white male, I like that's, it's just something that never occurred to me before it popped up a couple of weeks ago. And, and exactly what you're saying, it's uncomfortable, because I'm like, all of a sudden, I'm rethinking my Wow, am I using language? Am I using terms that makes someone else feel bad or feel like uncomfortable with the situation? And like that was never my intention, obviously. But if I did, if we've I've, we've offended someone or we've pushed them out of the industry that way, that's just a a horrible thing, right? 
I, Ken and I always talk about how we need different voices and different views when we're looking at applications, like from a source code perspective, because the experience matters and someone else's experience is going to open up other avenues of attack, other avenues of thought about an application that we're, you know, that you or I or anyone else is, is not necessarily going to think about. So, I mean, that was the reason that we initially started talk, having this conversation with you, Laura. Um, and that's why we're excited to have you here, because exactly what you're saying is it can be a little bit uncomfortable. Like, that's definitely what I've been feeling. Um, and like, we've seen this happen almost across the industry. You, you mentioned Washington, right? Like, I know the Redskins has been a bit big thing lately. We have some um, friends that are fans of the Redskins, right? That are the Washington Football Club, I guess, or whatever they're calling themselves right now. Um, and even in my little community here, right, uh, like the high school, the local high school um, is going through a, a rebranding because they mm -hmm. were, yeah, they, they were the Bountiful Braves, right? That was the name of the uh, of the mascot. And the, the amount of vitriol on both sides of the issue or even on like, it, you know, hey, this is what they've always been, so we shouldn't change it. it it's just been an interesting, interesting thing to watch. And so I like... I don't feel like I have any answers on, hey, what is it that I should do moving forward, right? Yeah. Uh, and so like that that's kind of my first question to you is how do you approach this with people, right? Is, because yeah. um, it, it just kind of popped up and I, I know me and Ken were like, whoa, what, what, what are we supposed to even say about this, right? So yeah, know, how, like, how do you go about that? Yeah, what do we yeah. say? I have no, like, same as you. I mean, I don't, same as you, Seth, like, I'm the wrong person to know the answer. <laughs> I don't. Yeah. Yeah. Well, here, I guess here's what I'll say is that, um, yep, all that's true. <laughs> all of it is true. And um, so when I, um, I think about, and it's part of all, my experience as well as some of my training with, you know, um, folks who do this for a living, but really in the grounding that I got um, in the approach at the National Multicultural Institute. Here's what's really important, I think, for us to understand about why it's so hard and painful and risky um, to really get into these conversations. And the reason it is, is because we have not, we, and I say we, um, and that's just about everybody in this country. I'm, I'm going to talk about this specifically from a United States context. Um, I don't know where folks might be coming from um, to the show in their life journeys or any of that, but um, I really want to ground things in the rea current realities and the history of the United States. Um, we are really brought up uh, and surrounded by a story that makes it really hard for us to have this conversation, right? So what are the first words that, you know, we usually associate with the United States, right? Um, equality and freedom. Yeah. So when you start to talk about inequality, that's not the thing we're socialized to talk about. <laughs> Right. We're like, no, everything's equal. That's, yeah. that's like the story of this country. So people really lack skills. We lack all kinds of skills for talking about this. Um, and then the other thing becomes um, is that our dialogue and the history and the narrative that we have been 
exposed to around, especially racism, okay, and I'll, I'll talk specifically about racism, is has been a moral conversation. And what I mean by that is that there have been villains and there have been heroes. And there's nothing in between. Um, most people don't really think about the fact that American society is actually a very, um, in your terms, it's very binary, yeah. right? It's on or off. It's good or bad, right? Everything is a binary. Um, and, you know, that's a very specific part of American culture. So how do you enter into this really complex, really complex, both from a emotional perspective and identity and feelings and, you know, history, all of it is very complex. When the tools that you're given is <laughs> right and wrong, like on or off, um, and equality and freedom. Like those are the only things that we're given to work with, especially, and you know, especially in our country, if you're a straight white male, yeah, right? That's the reality that our, all our country, all the narratives are built around. So um, there have just not been a lot of tools made available to most of us throughout our lives. Now that's, I think that's really different with younger people um, and makes me feel very old to say that <laughs> now. Um, you know, as a, as a Gen Xer, where I, I'm still, that's, now we're middle age. Um, but, you know, I noticed generational differences. I noticed that, um, you know, right now I'm an executive director, I'm a CEO, and so I have staff. So my staff that are 10 years younger than me, um, 10 to 15 years younger than me, um, we're probably the first generation that we're being raised with having conversation, we're interrogating all of this stuff, was introduced to them at a very young age. So they're very good at pointing at something and being like, ooh, um, I don't think that's right. And I think we should tear it down. I mean, they were trained. And our, I think there's another challenge where if you're of a certain age, we were not trained that way. It was yeah was not given for that. So it's really important just to understand those things. Like there is a good and there, look, there's a right and a wrong. Okay. There, there is a right and a wrong to this, but um, it doesn't make you a good or a bad person also to yeah. make mistakes. And I think it's also about learning um, so that you can make right decisions or good decisions, decisions that bent that and where good means there are decisions that are going to benefit everybody. They're going to let people be the healthiest participants in the systems that we're in. You yeah. know, it's a hard process. It's just like, look, it's like therapy. Therapy, you come in because you don't you don't know. You've got a habit that is not working for you but you don't know how to fix it. So you got to go get some help, Yep. you know, and it's painful and it's uncomfortable. You got to stop, you know, you question your, like, it's all the same work. It's mm -hmm. all the same work. So anyway, I think framing it that way is like, doesn't it make you feel a little bit like less stressed out? Yeah. Yeah, it definitely does. I, I, I mean, it's interesting that you call it kind of the, uh, the younger, um, generation, right? Because I, I mean, I have a 17 year old daughter. And, and that is definitely one thing that I've noticed is she is very, very just like, 
she'll put her foot down and and call stuff out like even that me and my wife do right like or say no. and i'm like wow I, i'm sorry right like we didn't realize this and then like i mentioned the the whole like braves thing um talking about like how they would sit in assemblies and they would like they have like this mascot that comes out and like three-fourths of the kids that are in there are just like whoa this is not right but it took this whole national conversation to happen yeah. for for like the the older community or the community that's actually running the schools to question that to say like okay maybe maybe we should replace that right but yeah. like they've they've got that sense that I like I know we didn't necessarily grow up with and I know I'm I'm coming from like you know Utah which is one of the least diverse places in in the US right like so it's you know it is very white and kind of standard um, but even like her generation that I'm seeing growing up now is exactly what you're saying, right? They are a lot more aware of that. So it does, I, I mean, it does make me feel better. I, you know, I don't know, Ken, what, you know, I mean, not, not better. It still makes me question like, all right, what do I need to say? But, you know, Ken, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, no, I, I don't really, the, the thing is I'm pretty much a blank sl slate here in the sense that, uh, I mean, cause like you mentioned you that up. they're three. What's that? You said we'll fill you up. That's all right. Okay. Right. I, well, just, you know, what I what I mean by that is, so you mentioned a, a name change. They're having a name change here over a, uh, there's a high school because it's, um, I think it's a, I think it's like a Confederate general or something's name. And so they're, they're changing it to get rid of that. And uh, I guess because I don't know anything, I, I've been trying to figure out like, uh, like what helps, you know, like what, what is the, does changing names help? I mean, maybe, I mean, for sure. Like, uh, I, th I would imagine so, but again, I don't, I don't know. The, the, the question is what, what is actually helping, you know, yeah. what, um, what, what are, what are we doing enough? Are we focusing our efforts on the right things? I, you know, that's just, there's more questions over here on my side than I have answers. So, yeah, I always, uh, one of the things, um, I feel like I've had to say a lot more in these conversations over the last six months, five to six months is that, um, the most important thing that you can do is to not be paralyzed, like not, not be paralyzed by perfection. So, uh, and then I'm going to pull back to some of the things that you're talking about. Um, but here's the thing is that if there, there is a very specific history about this country and the way that it was formed and, uh, and I'm going to, and, and the way that, cause I really want to talk about this as a, as systemic. All right. Um, because that's, that's actually what's important here. Yeah. So that's the thing also about um, this country, right? We are very, it's a very individualistic country. So it's my job to fix it, right? Um, Ken, just what you were saying. So what is it for me? What is it for me? Here's the thing is that you, what you do as a person on an individual level is definitely important. Okay. That's really, really important. But if we really want to make big change, we want to make this country, your organization's a um, better and inclusive, you have to have both individual level change, but you have to have structural change too. So we can all, and this happened with the Civil Rights Act, right? We had the Civil Rights Act 
where one one set of things changed in 1965, but a lot of people's hearts didn't change. Yeah. Okay, so we didn't quite get what we needed. So we need hearts and minds as well as structural change to happen. And that's why this is an exciting moment right now. And that wasn't that long ago. Oh, no, it no. wasn't. No. That was like a second ago in the history of history. Like, it was you know 11 I mean? years before I was born. Yeah. It was yeah, 11 years ago. before I was born. Okay. okay. It, it was not ancient history. Um, but all that to say is that... Um, Here's the thing is that our systems were built during times where specifically around race, but also around gender, okay, Um, were specifically built to exclude, to identify who were others. And we've had to go in and band-aid things. Like, remember, like, amendments to the Constitution were like, oh, I think that was bad. Yeah. Now, um, Times have changed. <laughs> yeah. You no, know, but it, this is, I think, an important thing to think about. And look, I work in museums, so thinking about culture and history is also a thing I do all the time. And we talk about the narrative. Um, there's a reason why plantations that are historical sites are really changing the stories they tell about themselves as museums now. Mm-hmm. That these were places of slave labor. They're not, they're changing from doing tours of look how beautiful this house was to look at what it really took to run this because these were, these were, you know, forced labor camps for black people. I went to one in Charleston and that is exactly what they did. They had set up, yeah, like a big section, like most of it was devoted to showing exactly like, yeah, what you just said. You know, that's a history. Look, it's painful. It's painful now because our consciousness and awareness has started to change. Um, but what we, ha- what we haven't done for ourselves in this country is built ways to reckon with that and accept how awful, like, yeah, yeah, we can do better. Right. And so that's at a very high level, but it, it sets up everything. Like our companies are set up, Uh, you know, based on the laws that were built, you know, it all sort of trickles down. So one of the really important things, like the interrogating of names, like what something is named, is really about what are we celebrating? (laughs) Like, (laughs) why, why are we putting, why is it so important? Why is it honorable? Like when you put somebody's name on a building, that is a sign of honor. So this idea of like, what are we really honoring here by honoring this person? That's such a, um, I think an important phase and language is part of that too, right? So when we talk about culture, culture is like all of the rules for what's right and wrong. And language is such an important part of that. It really like reflects who you are as a people or a society. So, you know, I think, um, people might be familiar with like, I, I love, this is a personal fascination of mine, like the German language that has so specific and they have a name for like the most nuanced feelings. So it's not that they are not a feeling culture, but they are very specific. So like even the German um, engineering, yeah, German <laughs> engineering, but like the word Schadenfreude, like the pleasure that you get 
from watching somebody else's discomfort or pain, they made a word for that. Yeah. So like that tells you about like specificity. And um, so when we name things, we like heroes in this culture. We like yeah. heroes. We like the heroes this and who is the hero of that? So all of this with the name changing and the statues is us reckoning with like, really who are our heroes? And so this comes down to um, also educating yourself. Like, you know, Ken, you said, I'm, I'm a blank slate here. So there's a lot of opportunity for self-education. Like, what do I not know? Like, what do I not know? Um, because we were definitely taught very specific histories about the story of this place and this country, you know? Um, yeah, and until I was older, I thought Christopher Columbus, Columbus was a great guy. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, yeah, but I'll tell you, like, yeah. in, in my world, in, in my world, yeah, like, not at all. Yeah, not at all. Yeah. Earlier, you know, um, and we used to joke, for example, I grew up in Texas and there's a lot of stories, you know, the Texas Revolution and all this stuff. And, you know, so we joke in my home, like, and he's like, remember the Alamo? And, you know, my dad would say, like, well, I don't know. We won that one. I'll remember the Alamo, you know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Mexican American. So remember um, it for a different reason. <laughs> yeah. You know, so like there are, there are a lot of sites. This is a beautiful thing. If I was going to take it from a positive perspective, there's beautiful things about this country. It has a really hard history, but one of the beautiful things is the number of stories there are like, yeah. We don't we don't know the stories of, um, you know, the Pueblo peoples in New Mexico. We're not taught those. We're not taught their histories and uh, and their belief systems, even though they are the original one of the original peoples of this land. Right. Yeah. So that's the thing. That's the moment we're at right now. And it's so overwhelming, I think, because it exposes how narrow I think the story is that most of us have been told. Okay, so that's yeah. like at a, at a really, really big level. Yeah, I and know I think, yeah. No, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. No, I was just gonna say, and I think it's like, what's interesting about this moment too is it, I feel like people are exposing not just what, like what are we celebrating in terms of people that like owned other people and, you know, had performed atrocities against other people in search of, what they thought was right. Right. Which is like the reason so many bad things have happened in history. But anyways, it's also a like people outside of that. There's other things too, like people who abuse their power for uh, like the Harvey Weinsteins of the world, for instance, like I love that that's getting called. That's probably my favorite thing about this. Seth and I actually have dealt with a sociopath CEO before and firsthand. And I can tell you like, I love the fact that people are calling out those who abuse their power. And I hope that that's something we continue. Uh, but I, but yeah, as it pertains to this discussion, um, I mean, is that part of, is that part of this is that we need oh. to identify, oh. like you said, everything we're propping up and really start scrutinizing why we're propping, prop, prop, propping it up. Yes. Yeah. I mean, and it, look, it's a really, it's the kind of, it's a kind of conversation that requires a lot of ability to, to do ability and time 
to do self-reflection. Okay. And so then that's when you get down to the individual level, right? That's mm -hmm. if you're a contemplative self-reflective person um, or you have those skills and that, that it's a skill really that you have to build, then questioning those things becomes like invigorating and interesting. And so the, let's say the heated discussions around terminology that you guys were talking about, like blacklist and whitelist, and I, I can talk about that really specifically in a second, it's uncomfortable, but you're, you want to get into it. And, yeah. you know, then there are plenty of people for whom self-reflection and that kind of interrogation is not a habit. And in fact, it's um, sometimes uh, in opposition to how they've been taught to be, either personally or professionally, you know, that there are consequences to that kind of interrogation. Um, and so they will push because, look, um, we talk a big game in, and I'm moving to the professional context, everybody talks a big game about how good change is. Human beings don't love it. We no. don't love it. We are not. We are good at seeing the change we want, but we are real bad at getting there. Yeah. <laughs> you know, reminds me of that book, Who Moved My Cheese? Yeah. <laughs> totally true. And I should say the other part of my background is that I have a, um, I did graduate work. I have a master's in organizational development and leadership. So I spent a lot of time learning how, particularly in a professional environment, how how bad people and organizations are. And sometimes um, how that's celebrated, yeah. unfortunately. Yeah, around change. And that's just from like actually like a production perspective, like not even when add on the layer of how charged issues of inequity, like these big societal issues are, it becomes really, really hard. So I guess, you know, it's like, it, it's hard and the tools are just being developed, like the tools are really new. So the other thing I wanted to say is that we're kind of all collectively negotiating what's right, like what our final state, our ideal final state is. Um, I think we like, again, things about American culture. Um, we, I think that there's a story that we're like, uh, very like risk taker. This is a very risk averse culture. What yeah. we like to be is right. <laughs> we like to be we right. Be right. Yeah. Right. And and you see that. So talking about even with your comment around the CEO before. So the reason that kind of behavior and then the policies, you know, the practice, either whether written policies or informal policies, you know, at, with the workplace, you have the stuff that's in the manual, but then you have the way things really work. So a lot of the reason that those um, dysfunctional policies exist is because they're being excused. That bad behavior is being excused because the outcome, it's mapping to some outcome that's more important. So um, a professional's, a colleague, a leader's, bad personal behavior. And I mean, in the scope of, let's say they're sexist or they're racist or they're just a bigot, um, you know, or whatever, or they're just a bad manager. They're exploitative. Um, what I see a lot in organizations is like, but they show the spreadsheet and boy, those numbers look good. Right. Yep, yep. That's right. 
That's yeah. that's what we're valuing as the most important value. And so as long as you're achieving that rightness, how you get there can be excused. And so that's yeah. part, when we bring it into the workplace, into the professional environment. Um, I always want to ask, okay, so but what so what's what is success? Like how are what is actually success? And because you can be right or wrong, but let's be honest, in a workplace environment, if somebody is outputting what the organization says is success, there is very little motivation to rock that boat. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, and I, I mean, yeah. do you Go think ahead, people ever pull it? I'm sorry, Seth. Uh, no, I was just going to ask, ahead. do you ever think, are, are you, do, have you ever, does this happen where people get pulled in to help with DNI efforts, but then all it really is is like for show, and it's not actually to improve the unit? Okay, I I had a suspicion that it that that might be the case. You know, not taking it to because the result, if the result that they're trying to go for is like you said, um, more numbers on a spreadsheet, and perhaps that that effort they believe will will get them there. I could see it being an avenue for. A, like not abuse, but well, yeah, abuse, but just like, yeah. Well, I, being, ex you said it perfectly being ex exploitative, basically. Yeah. yeah. I mean, here's the other thing. And I keep talking about, again, I keep saying about American culture. It's really important because we don't, when you're in your culture, you don't explain, you sort of don't, nobody ever says, well, in my culture, you know, that's not how it works. And it's really important to say those things. Um, look, also, American culture is very like present focused, right? We're like very short, at, like right now, right now, immediate. Everything needs to be immediate. So the hard thing about this work is that it's long term. Mm -hmm. So it won't show up on your spreadsheet for five years. <laughs> okay, so imagine that. Like, so you have to think about like, what is the viewpoint that you have to be able to hold? Like your leadership has to be able to hold on to that or pass it. For five years, all oh, what's the churn in your organization like? Right, so in the organizational change world, it takes three to five years for the change to actually. All of that is run up, and then at like three or five years, so you have to be able to hold that for that long. Yeah, that's that's not very promising. I mean, you look at those organizations that are completely run quarter to quarter based on what the stock price is, right? And that right. like, so yes, like they may get a lawsuit or whatever and decide that they're going to do diversity and inclusion training. But then, you know, yeah, exactly. All right. Okay. So we did that this quarter. All right. We'll move on. I, I, I can totally see that happening. And that's what it feels like having been in large organizations is there is a very short-term focus on, oh, we need to talk about this and everyone has to go do this training, but it's not a sustained thing by any stretch. Right? Yeah. And, and I'll say that like as a, as a consultant, when I've done these as consultations, one of the most important things I do, I do a screen with the client and I, I've said, you're not ready for, you can work with somebody else, but you're not ready to work with me in the way we're going to engage because yeah. I, I only want to help set you on a long-term path for change. And if you're not ready for that yet, I, I am not going to waste my time. Yeah. I think it also has a, um, I'm not saying no action is better than bad action, but sometimes, you know, you all say I've had to sit in that training. Here's the thing, like, 
sometimes it can set it back. It can cre actually create more resistance <laughs> than when you started with. So it's highly skilled work, but like I said, it's not like being a mechanical engineer, the whole sort of profession of being a chief diversity officer and um, being this kind of consultant and doing this work is super new. I was part of a, um, a working group for the Society for Human Resource Management, SHRM, in 20, maybe it was 2011 or 2012 that helped to uh, outline for the first time what the qualifications and job description sort of standardized for you know the country for a corporate sector should be for a chief diversity officer. That that came out less than ten years ago. You know? <laughs> That's so recent. So yeah. It, it's so new. Okay. So I think that that's also part of like the pressure that we're feeling is we want to be right. Like we want to know what the right answer is yeah. <laughs> we want to know right now. And um, when the bigger context is that we're really at the beginning of this as whatever, as a workplace, as professions, as a society, like we are what 50, 40, well, yeah, 50 years into undoing things that were built for like 500, 600 years, yeah. right? Yeah. So there's some, I don't know, like I'm seeing some interesting parallels when you, when you talk about organizational change and even when Ken and I go in to talk about security, right? Like there's oh, the organization. Yeah. Yep. So organizations come and they, they say, they want to know, Hey, are we secure right now? And when you say, no, here's a path to get there. They don't want to hear it. Right. So we always talk about, do you care about security or are you just in this for a compliance check? Cause that, right. that's a very right. similar the concept is, yeah, we would much rather work with the organizations that want to improve things across the board rather than just, hey, you know, we had to get this contract, so we had to get this checkbox and then move on, right? So, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, Adam and I have these. It, it's very similar. <laughs> it's very similar work. I mean, it really is culture change work. Yeah. You know? Um, and so, you know, I want to go back to like some of these conversations that I know you all are seeing in your own community because I've been talking at a like very high cultural level. But I think it's important to start there. Like first, it is. To, yeah. I think understand the background, like everything that's around you in this, because we don't we're not having any of these conversations in bubbles. Right. There, there's a reason that this conversations started to um come up in your community at the same time, right, as our um, uprisings, right, our racial injustice uprisings, because the whole world, we're, we're in this whole fabric together. Yeah. Um, you, you, you framing it in, in just the very beginning of the episode in a positive light, I like that it, yeah, I feel like that takes away some of the, like, emotionally charged aspects of the conversation, because Rightfully so, for some people, it can, it can be very emotional, um, you know, and, and <clears throat> I probably am not one of those people because, you know, I'm a white dude, you know. Yeah. Um, but it so should be emotional for you. It should be. It should be. Yes, yeah. it absolutely should be. Um, it will be. I'm just using myself as an example of the greater community. But, yeah. you know, I think that, like, the, the way you framed that, from the beginning where, where it's more of like a, 
yeah, just like a positive outlook on this helps reduce or temper that sort of, uh, maybe more so than negative react, any negative reactions. Well, and you know, and I'll say that it, it comes not just from my personal orientation, but also my professional training around and seeing what works. Um, I think the other thing that I hadn't said yet is that specifically, um, actually all, all of the isms, right? All of the isms in most of our dialogue in this country, we really focus on, uh, and rightly so, we're focused on the community or the individuals that are on the receiving end of the discrimination, right? Whether it's by ability, you know, when we're talking about ableism, we're talking about sexism, we talk about racism, um, we're always um, focusing on those that are receiving the bad behavior as the ones that are hurt. But here's the reality. Um, we all are hurt. We're all hurt by injustice, even if we are not the targets of it. Because what happens is that you're the perpetrator of you're complicit in a system that is hurting other people. And that's not okay. It's robbing you of your opportunity for empathy. Like the whole idea, like, I didn't even know. Yeah. Well, that's because the narrative has kept you from knowing. And that's not okay. Like, that's not all right. It, helps, it keeps us from being empathetic, right? And in yeah. connection with other people. Yeah. And I, and I feel like that's the, like the, that gut response that a lot of people have to this discussion. Like, like even me is it's like, oh, this is uncomfortable. And I have been in the wrong, right? Like, you know, this, there's maybe a chance that what I've been doing and what I've been taught my whole life is not the right thing. And again, that goes back to what you're saying about right versus wrong. And we like to be right in the, in the US and maybe we're not. And that's uncomfortable to think about. It's hard to think about because it requires change and it requires personal reflection, right? And it shakes your foundation. Look, when you're told or you get an inkling that what you've been taught your whole life is wrong. It it's not okay. It's not easy. Okay, that's yeah. not an easy realization for anybody. Um, and I want to talk like also specifically. I keep wanting to get into this black and white conversation about whiteness. Um, and I will say, and this is not personally, but also as we look, if you look from a like sociological perspective, the process of like becoming white actually is also a generational trauma for a lot of white people. So mm -hmm. this is what I see from having done a lot of trainings, right? When we talk about unpacking identity and what's your family history, what's your ethnicity, what are your cultural practices? And a lot of people are like, I'm just white. Like I'm just white. Mm -hmm. And I don't feel like I have anything to say here, which number one is not true. But when we unpack it, like what's the other like we talk a lot about immigrant history and like Ellis Island and how great it was, but a lot of your ancestors had to erase their histories, erase who they were. They changed their names so that they didn't sound like whatever country, mostly Eastern and Southern Europe, they were from because they would not be treated as white uh -huh. in this country. Like, do you talk? Do we talk about white erasure? No, it's kind of like, oh, they changed their name in Ellis Island. Like that's okay. Like, no, no. <laughs> yeah. 
it's not okay. Okay, so, but there's like, nobody wants to talk about whiteness, but like it was really written very explicitly in some of our founding documents. It's a real driving force that everything revolves around in this country. Um, yeah. You know, economic laws, you know, uh, we're talking, finally people are talking about redlining and Red like, line. yep. That that's had on wealth, the ability to, you know, grow wealth generationally, specifically. For I don't, black I'm not familiar with that. So redlining, yeah. So there was a system of redlining, um, which is when um, it was all about real estate development mm -hmm. and um, lenders um, not allowing, not um, not allowing, especially black folks to borrow for purchasing houses in certain areas. So they would be uh, only able to purchase houses. There was a way of ghettoizing and segre enforcing segregation um, after and during the Jim Crow era and even really until pretty recently, like um, continues. So, wait, so you could get a loan, but it, only if you stayed in like, basically you stay in your section type deal. Yeah. Oh my God! I didn't. Yeah, I within, didn't know about with, that. that's why they within the red lines. That's why within the red line. And uh, interestingly enough, right? Like, so can you, you, it, it's not uncommon not to know about that, especially as you know, a white guy. It wouldn't uh, have ever it wasn't a yeah, rule. It wasn't a rule. And and honestly, like one of the first times the big discussions I've had about redlining was my daughter and some of the classes that she's had. Again, like the the younger oh. generation actually addressing that, saying, "Hey, this is not right." Yeah, I'm like, hey, you're absolutely correct. Oh, yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't remember that being in any of my history books. It wasn't. Yeah. No, no, it wasn't, and it was a major. It was a major driving factor in modern development of cities, mm -hmm. like since the 1950s. You know, um, like why is this neighborhood? Why has this been a traditionally black neighborhood? Because that's the only place they were allowed to buy houses. Oh wow. You know. So you're yeah. yeah, that's systemic. Yeah, that feels systemic. <laughs> I mean, like when you pull it, peel it back. If you people who are prone to conspiracy theories are like, wow. I mean, like it's really layered. We've done a very good job of baking racism into every part of this of the way our country functions. So it does feel overwhelming. Like it must feel like um, if it's new to you that you're like, okay, like what was I? Would somebody give me something? Like, is this really, re you want to not accept it as reality because it's so opposite and it's so like thorough that it is hard to conceptualize if you've never been exposed to it. Now, the thing to understand is that 13% of the U.S. population has been the direct, 13% of African-American population in this country, 13% of our country has been the direct target of those policies for, you know, 600 years and uh, add in, you know, depending on the place you're in another 20 to, if we add uh, Latinos, Asian Americans and um, Native Americans to the mix. Well, now we're talking about 40% of the population that has also been targeted by these policies that white people actually have wouldn't know about because it wasn't about them it, and it yeah. wasn't for them. I mean, it, you know, like it wasn't, it wasn't for them. So how would you know, but it was in service. It was in service of, 
but not negatively impacting. Well, it, it, yeah. it, it is actually, it is, but, but we, we, but in the sense that, yeah, like it was like, it was normal. So that's why I mean about like, if you, you can talk, we can have this conversation and if we're going to talk about it in a healing way, like look at this messed up stuff that you didn't ask for. You didn't ask for nobody, not a lot of white people, some white people, but not a lot of white people asked for that to happen, but it happened and it has created uh, a sense of like, well, but everything's fine because you wouldn't have visibility into it, right? So when we have these conversations and I wanna, I do wanna turn it and there are say people of color or women who are saying, this is my truth. Right. And they're getting like, oh, that doesn't, they're getting minimized or shut down. It's so, it, that's so hurtful because yeah. so the redlining is it's not that it's unemotional but like that's a very structural thing we can talk about like it's objective um but the the bringing up and interrogating language is kind of the same thing it's like hey 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 everybody did you know that maybe somebody felt that i feel this way that this might have an impact and everybody's like no it's fine they just want to live in that side of town they like being together they don't want to live over <laughs> You know, so it's that yeah. it's behavior just in a different context. Like justification for yeah, and something so, you don't even really understand. <laughs> right, so yeah. black and white, blacklist and whitelist, and we get socialized. It, there's also all this like invisible chatter that shapes our values about what's right and what's wrong, what's good and what's bad. Um, have you all heard of or done the uh, implicit assumptions test or the implicit bias test from Harvard? I have, have not. So I think the, the website is implicit.harvard.edu. Um, it comes out of the Harvard um, School of Psychology. And again, they started this test, sort of um, prototyping this in the early 2000s. Um, and um, what it was, was trying to measure if they could measure um, how well, how much you are conditioned subconsciously, subconsciously to associate good with whiteness and bad with blackness, right? Because everybody says like, I'm not racist. I'm not racist. You know, I don't have any of these problems. And so it's a little Pavlov dog test where they um, so, you know, like good and bad and you're training your right and left. And then they start to show you pictures of white and black faces. And it times your reaction and it's subconscious. Okay. So this is also about our subconscious. And it'll tell you how biased you are against blackness. And they've developed. And so it's been tested by, you know, validated by millions of users. And they've made tweaks to it. And they've added different biases so you can see your bias around male or female which is around strongness or weakness which mm -hmm. is really interesting um also so gender um around sexual orientation so they have they have a number of these and the point is is that there's so much of this that also happens in our when i talk about like our lizard brain <laughs> it's really 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 deep 
And I think that's important too, because it gives us a way to not excuse our behavior, but understand, like I might be having feelings that I really don't get. I cannot intellectualize and I can't articulate, but it's there. So like, yeah, like it's just black and white. It's just black and white. Well, okay. Why does that matter so much to you? Does it, why does it really matter? Because you know what? No, it's not universal. Blackness, blackness is not bad everywhere in all countries globally by the human brain. No, that's not true. Black is bad here. And in some other places, whiteness is good here. You know, like in China, white is, is the color of mourning. You don't, and red is danger here. Red is lucky there. You know what I mean? So like words do have values encoded into them. And the interesting thing about, I think the conversations that are happening in your community are people are wrestling with, well, number one, what are the real practical implications of changing them? Because I know that they're built into systems and like documentation and it, yeah, it's in a lot of places. So that can be daunting. But the second, you know, and the second piece of it is wrestling with how important is the value to you? You know, like, what if it was, uh, you know, allowed and disallowed? I'm not going to get into it with you guys because I do this with my husband. And, I, I, you know, that's not my conversation. But I will say that language, like language matters. Um, but it's also constantly being negotiated. Mm-hmm. It's group. You guys have, you all have to decide. This community yeah. has to decide what's good. There's no, like, third party that is going to tell you, like, Yes. Come on, Laura. We were supposed to answer all the questions today, but it's, no. very, it's very unsatisfying to be in yeah. a conversation with me about this. I no, but I get it, right? Because we're the ones that decide what we what values we have, right? And so if we decide that we're gonna, you know, do away with that, then we do away with it and we move on, right? It's uh, you know, if we want to mm-hmm. be inclusive, then we we make sure that we are inclusive everywhere and or you know, as much as well, yeah, everywhere. You're always asking. You're, oh, I yeah. would say that you're, what you're always doing is remember, like, am I doing my check? Like, did, oh, yeah. did we forget to ask? Like, yeah. that's really the work. Like, if you mm-hmm. want to look at success, what I think of as success is that because look, we're humans. There's a whole part about you know, like we're social beings, which means we always want to be in a group together. But also, that means is that there's always somebody who's not our group. Yeah. It's about what our tolerance is for making hard lines around that or not and in what environments. So I always think that it's a success when a group is really comfortable being like, Hey, check, we need to do a check here. We need to do a representation check and an inclusion check. Can we just do that check? Yeah. Cause that's how we move forward. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I like, I don't know. My, my, my wife always says this, right? Like when we know better then we do better. Right. Yeah, and, you know, and that's it's kind of like a driving force for for us as far as, hey, you know, just because we didn't re- recognize something in the past doesn't mean that we don't recognize it now and can't do a better job moving forward to make sure that others others are comfortable with us or you know in the conversations that we have that we are more inclusive. Yeah, <laughs> I think so. in our industry too, like we're unique in the sense that the folks that. <clears throat> are working in it. Some of the, I guess the people that are contributing some of the most 
important stuff. They're very diverse. In fact, some of them would be considered not, I don't know if you, how you would say it, not neurotypical. So you have yeah. diversity yeah. in yeah. Um, some people are on the spectrum. Some mm -hmm. people come from broken backgrounds. Some people come from great backgrounds. I mean, you have, you have a very big mix, but one of the things that I think people are trying, I think people might be trying to accomplish here is to make it easier for those folks for, for not for those, but for everyone to be able to, um, let me give a concrete example. You go to a conference, Seth, um, seven, six years ago, when you go to a conference, who are the majority of the attendees and what are they wearing? Who <laughs> are the majority of the attendees? Uh, white dudes I, I mean, in cargo shorts and black shirts. And black shirts. Yep. Yep. That was if a you're coming to that conference room as an attendee and you're not one of those people, how does that feel trying to trying to break mm -hmm. in and have conversations? Like we talk about hallway con. Yep. You know, it like just we want happen. it to be exactly you're it's yeah. intimidating. It's intimidating anytime. It doesn't matter who what? you are. It could be me going to, uh, I don't know, uh, so something that's uh, for a good example. When I first started yoga, it was predominantly women in the class and I would go with my wife and it was like, it was the one time I definitely felt like the outsider and it felt awkward and I had to really like push myself to get over it because it was just, I felt so I was like one person and like a 40, like, yeah. so like 39 women and then one me. And so it was a little weird at first. And I think that that might be what we're trying to do is make it easier, yeah. make the barrier less with whether it's changing wording, you know, whether it's um, having, I think one of the, the cool things that OWASP did do was having, um, uh, well, for one, <clears throat> paying for uh, training for underrepresented group, un underrepresented groups, mm -hmm. um, providing uh, trying trying to ensure that there was a track just for un underrepresented groups, and I do think that they tried to have some of these discussions as an organization. Um, but I guess the question really remains, you know. What can we really do to, if that is our goal, what, what can, what are the, some of the like appropriate ways to go about structurally changing that so that we get as many voices in this conversation as many people in this conversation as possible? Yeah. Well, and I mean, part of that is like, we live on Twitter, but that like is a horrible, horrible uh, way to actually debate anything, right? Just, just in general, like we'll put that out there. So I, that's where, that's kind of, I think that what, Ken's asking. Yeah. I made my very yeah. professional face um, in reaction <laughs> to Twitter. <Yeah>. Um, <laughs> is, um, so, but, okay, so, but this is a good conversation, right? So one of the key tenets of inclusion work is aligning your intent with your impact. And sometimes what, what, what how you do that is choosing the right tools or the right the right action to get you from your intent to your impact. So here's what we know, let's say about Twitter, for example. No, it's a place where people try to win. Like yeah. that's what Twitter is. Yeah. All right. So winning is not, there's a loser that that is not a welcoming environment. That's not like, oh, nice to meet you environment. Yeah. Who that's has the best argument? It's not <laughs> helpful. It's not, it's not the place. That's where you go to fight. And yeah. again, Adam and I have this conversation 
a lot. Um, and it's why I have a Twitter account that is, has zero posts on it. I never <laughs> remove myself because this is the work that I do and it was not the platform. It's not the appropriate platform for me to express my thoughts and engage with folks. And so I made that decision. So one of the really good things though in your community is actually your community is really good at building community. Like your, your community is really good at building virtual community. And so, you know, maybe your home is, um, you know, on maybe your homes are on Slack where yeah. I know that that's where, that's where people are brought on and you all have, you're building community. So this is, inclusion is also about building community. So is Twitter where you build a community? No, you have followers, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> right. You have followers. That, you're that, an influencer. This, this is not a, that, that, this is community, right? Where we're all touching each other and Twitter is like, and Instagram, all of them are just like, somebody's following you. So that, that does not work. Um, and so I think if we think about like, just have a moment where it's like, are we having this conversation in the right place? Am I inviting people? Are you seeing people in your Twitter environment that are bringing an interesting perspective, but you want to welcome them in, in a less contentious place? Where's your Slack? You know, what's that community um, where people are in trust with each other that you can build that, like those social behaviors are super important. And when you're talking about the conference, some of those um, interventions are really best practices. So like if we know, and, and it doesn't even just have to be for, you know, uh, people of color, but there are all kinds of new uh, newcomers. Like we recognize we have a very specific culture, like this meeting, this group of people look a real specific way. And if you're new, it's weird. And so having um, onboarding is really important um, in these environments. I'm also a big fan of having ex uh, explicit norms for communications. Um, I think you see them, especially for conferences, it's a code of conduct, like it, like which again, sounds very legal. I like the idea of ground rules and norms. Like this is what we're about. We are about, you know, connecting. We're about geeking out on these things. Like this is what this community is about. And we're all, so everybody understands. Uh, I'll give you an example. I mean, I run the Association of Children's Museums. We're people and I know I'm seeing our time and so I'll try to make it quick. Um, oh, no, you're, you're, don't worry. You're cool. This is thousands of people who spend their professional lives making incredible fun things for little kids. Mm -hmm. Okay. So imagine these people at a professional conference. So for a long time, um, we tried to make it very serious. You know, I came in, I was like, this is not what these people do. Our people are like figuring out how they construct a three story twisty slide right, for kids, um, or thinking about how we make um, the best tinkering place for them. They don't want to sit. They don't want to sit in a room, like, with a PowerPoint, turning things down. <laughs> so, um, so anyway, we changed, like, we changed our conference so that it was meeting the culture of our people. And it also turned out that that made it more welcoming for 
mostly younger staff of color who were coming for the first time because that environment felt like their work environment. Like it felt like a place they were comfortable with already. Um, and we have a, you know, like a first timers orientation. And we talk a lot about the fact that um, people, we're big huggers. There, there's a lot of hugging. There's a lot of hugging. Um, I've had people who come to our conference for the first time and they're like, I said, I put my hands up. It was like, yay. <laughs> I haven't done that in my adult life, you know, ever, yeah. but I did it like 10 times at your conference because that's, that's the kind of conference it is. Right. So we have, we've become very, very explicit with people like, look, don't come here in your suit. Don't come here in your, nobody's wearing a suit. Please be comfortable. You can wear a cheeky t-shirt. If you want to wear a funny hat, that's fine. Like this is the crowd we are. Um, and that's, and that's really important um, to be aware. And if like the meetings that you're at actually haven't ever talked about like, well, what kind of, does actually everybody really like the way we set up this space? If we made it actually better for a thing we enjoy, it's actually like, who's making the rules? <laughs> who's making the rules about a head table and a PowerPoint and like around who made those rules? Um, but do you see what I mean about it being like ingrained? Like, well, maybe we can shake it up and more people will want to come to your party if you're throwing a good party. Mm -hmm. It's also a simple thing about humans, right? Um, and then the other thing is, like you said, kind of about <laughs> the cargo shorts. And black. <laughs> black shirts, yep. Yeah. It's the same you know, thing. I think that's pretty where we're, we're pretty sure that's both what we're wearing. But yeah, yeah, go yeah. ahead. But, <laughs> But, okay, so here, this is the also the thing that we're rubbing up against is that it's a fine line around um, balancing the fact that people who have like interests and are in like environments often will have like expressions, similar expressions, right? That's socialization. So, you know, black shirts. And, oh, yeah, mimicking. Is yeah. it like a, isn't that like a, a, like a social, like I'm cool, you're cool type, like it, type it's a, thing? It's a very visual signal. Like you and I are the same, right? Wow. So that's very comforting. That's very, very comforting, right? It can veer into though, where it's like, well, now we actually are all the same. And so as I think about um, a very logical, approach to why diversity of representation is so important is that, you know, think about a you've created an unnatural system. So let's look at natural systems, right? In, in the world, biological systems, the um, strongest systems, the ones that can survive crisis, because uh, we're, we're in a crisis right now, like no matter who you are, we're, we are, we are in a global crisis sure. right now. And the systems that can embrace, that have diversity, because diversity is the thing you can count, you can see the difference, right? That, that have diversity, sufficient diversity, and are also inclusive, which means that those diverse components actually are, have the space and understand their role to enact the skills that come with that difference. The systems that have that are the ones that are able to um, be resilient 
and thrive or survive a crisis and maybe even thrive after it. You know, those are forests that come back, but forests that are that have lost their biological diversity, those systems collapse. You know, we see that when a system becomes too homogenous, when one component of that system, one type of plant, one type of animal is um, grows unchecked, that that sameness actually creates collapse. And that's true in the sort of the wild as well as like within our professional lives. When everybody is the same, and you can see it, people start to get bored or they just, it just like, it narrows and narrows and narrows. And then you might find yourself all of a sudden, the rest of the world is way over. You used to be in the center of the world, mm -hmm. right? But now it's like, wow, how are we not part of that conversation? And it's because nobody, there were not enough members of different paradigms constantly challenging us to stay vibrant and vital. So I say that because diverse and inclusive and diverse groups are, I think we have this idea that it'll be some kind of like peaceful utopia. And that's, that's yeah. not the case at all. Divergent, <laughs> divergent thought is, is turbulent. The idea though is, is that we can all say, oh the boy, they really knocked me off. They really knocked me off my chair there. I did not like that but they're making me think about something, you know, so you can acknowledge yeah. that it not feel good, but like, Ooh, they I think there. I feel like that's what's lost. Cause we were, you know, you mentioned Twitter and, and, and I feel like that that's part of what's lost in Twitter. You talked about being sort of like, it's trying, well, first of all, you're just projecting outwards and it's not really like a, a conversation. Sometimes it is, but it's not a great conversation. So really you're aiming to be like, right which is, yeah, it's, it's, it's so, it's so like, like, I, I just hope that everybody can get, well, not everybody's going to be able to do this, but I hope a majority of people can start looking at when someone says something that you don't agree with processing it, analyzing it, being more objective about it. And then, yeah, making some critical decisions critical thinking based decisions off of that. And I feel like that gets lost. So in so many of the conversations when we were talking, when, when, when the conversation Seth was happening about blacklist versus whitelist and uh, allow and deny list. And uh, when it was brought up and some people were like, Hey, that is offensive to me for you to be calling. It, it makes me, it's, it, it's just perpetuating this like master slave terminology. I don't like it. And it, and it became, well, you're wrong or you're right, you know, and I agree or I disagree. And it wasn't like hmm, objectively, <laughs> clearly some people are uncomfortable with this terminology. You know, I'm not used to it. Maybe I don't even agree with it because it doesn't make me uncomfortable, but let me at least think about it. And I, yeah, I just and, wish and, it was a little bit more like acting like, I, want, I don't want to be like, I don't want to be negative and end with like saying a grown up, but that is sort of what a, being an adult is. It's like, yeah processing and yeah. And, and so, and to Laura's point on that though, right? Can that, that started on Twitter, but where did we take that, right? Like we took that directly to Slack to our, you know, our group of, you know, hackers or, you know, whatever you want to call them. And we had a long discussion about 
wow, really, what should we be calling this? And it was more of a back and forth discussion. It wasn't just that Twitter, everybody's right, everybody's wrong, but there was a lot of, well, you know, what are the origins of it? Why, why do we use that language? Is there something else that we could use that is less, you know, less charged? And, you know, you know, we kind of did settle on, right, a, you know, deny, deny list, allow list, and, and then it just kind of died and everybody moved on. And so, and I've started to see that sort of language show up in reports and other things when we discuss it. I, I mean, I still like when we're teaching, I still have a tendency to go back to, oh, oh yeah. we've always called this blacklist whitelist, but I'm like, oh no, nope, never mind. Like this is an allow list, this is a deny list. And then I just, you know, we move on from it, but it's still, it's ingrained, right? Like it's systemic as, as Laura, oh. you're saying, but we did take it to Slack, right? That community yeah. more. Yeah. Right. And, I and it was a little turbulent, but it was fine. We yeah. managed. <laughs> place that could hold it, right? That's a group where you all also get into it with each other about really technical stuff and probably get way more emotional and more yes. personally, you know, like invested in it. Um, but, you know, like, so that's sort of really good modeling. And even just to say it in this, on this platform that, a great, a, or an important conversation can start in the place that is not the right place to finish the conversation. You know? Um, that makes sense. All of that is okay. It's just that, again, I think that our, most of us, like I, I, I am, I recognize that I have the benefit of literally thinking about how to have these conversations and having this conversation, having these conversations, leading them, facilitating them for like 20 years. <laughs> okay. So um, that's, that's not a lot of people who make this their whole life in this way, you know, whatever your identity is, you know, um, and it's not that all people of color spend all their time doing it. I chose to pursue this as a, a profession so I just want to say that out loud for people, because again, we want to fall into like what I should be able to do. And we're all working on it. Like you don't, everybody theoretically can finish a marathon, right? But you can't just get up and do it. Or you could, but there's a lot of consequences for that. There's a better way to do it. And so like, this conversation is a marathon. This is a generational conversation. Like the marathon is the scope of generations, okay, that we're talking about. And so that is not to say that there's no, we shouldn't do anything. But as we work on ourselves individually, I, I think that it's actually, personally, I find it to be helpful when I, when I don't feel like I'm, I'm accomplishing what I want to accomplish in my in my tenure at the, at a job that I've had, or even within my lifetime, what I try to remind myself is that what I'm doing is planting seeds. So I would invite you all to think like these conversations about blacklist and whitelist and it's allowed to not. So think about those seeds that you're planting. And maybe it's not gonna be yours to finish the dialogue and take it to action, but all of this, your role in it is to start it. And so who are you handing it off like connection is really important in this work. And I know that that's not necessarily the way that your industry, I should also say that I worked a bunch of a number of years around gender equity and STEM and the career pipeline. And your industry has been the, the rules 
generally of the IT industry, and I think these are really being interrogated right now, have been set up to keep, to devalue real personal connection. Like the connection is all intellectual and skill-based. And, but what it sort of has also devalued is the idea of personal relations, like how important relationship is actually to your professional success. Uh, even though- And not- personal success. Yeah. Right, and your yeah, your personal success. So, and that's not true. That's never been true. It's always <laughs> about what your who your friends are. Like this is why everybody's wearing the same shirt and shorts. <laughs> but you know, it's supposed to be like what's allowed versus what actually happens. And so, I want to say that because, like in different industries, I work in a very person-centered industry, right? person-centered. So having these, like everybody putting their feelings on the table, like that's just all the time (laughs) in, in the industry I work in. It's like, um, what is that? Adam and I had a conversation, you know, he's been using video, you all are using video conferencing forever and we have been too, but there's a stark difference. It is assumed. It is assumed in my environment that we're all camera on. No, Weird. Because, because I was like, what does that person look like? I've asked him, you know, like, what what do they look like? And he's like, I don't know. Let me look at their LinkedIn. Like I've never, like, how have you been talking to somebody for months? And you like, you've never, (laughs) how that's weird. I don't get it. Um, And so, um, so, you know, like, how can you do this work if you're not seeing each other's faces? And I appreciate that I'm seeing the comments from Nate. Like, yeah, we don't want to change. Like, it's hard because are you going to be the person? Are you going to be the one guy in yoga class? Yeah. Are you yeah. going to be the one guy in yoga class? Who, nobody, I mean, it's very, I shouldn't say nobody. Very few people are willing to take that risk, okay? Yeah. And so that's also a dialogue that we have to have. It's like, who's going to be the person who says, all right, y'all, if we're really going to have a conversation, we need to at least see faces because it's yeah. things. And so like, it's unfathomable to me that you won't build these deep relationships without visually connecting with the other person. Like, that's so weird. Well, to the point, to, to that point though, I, I'll say this about it. Um, I, cause now there's more more information about everybody than there ever is there ever was really right like i can but before like going back eight years or so plus eight years plus i'd say timeline i made connections with people solely based off the work we were doing and i knew nothing about them i didn't know what they looked like i didn't know if they were i i would say i probably knew Maybe I'm not even sure if I knew if it was a man or woman I was talking to. Like there is some beauty in that, the sense that back then the, we all had a shared interest going back, I guess to your point or from earlier about, uh, about code of conduct versus, Hey, this is what we're about. And this is what we're not about, but that was what we were about. We were about, sharing tools, methodologies, maybe even some blog posts, whatever. I'm just looking, thinking back, and I don't even know if it was clear who at 
at any given time I was really like interfacing with. And then we catch up at a conference and then maybe I would meet that person if we caught up at a conference, but, and then I'd be like, yeah. what do you look like? What are you wearing? Cause I have no idea what you look like. Yep. That's so. so common. And even then, right. It's like the LinkedIn picture that they, they took five, six years ago and they look, you know, I mean, people change over time, right. So they look nothing like that anymore. Right. And so it's, yeah. Yeah. I, 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 don't, I don't know. You say that about it, about the, you know, face-to-face -face contact. And I think that's why we crave conferences so much. Like Ken and I were having this discussion is like, this has been hard personally for us because we don't, we aren't making those connections on a every month, every couple of month basis. It's only all online. And it just, it does not, it doesn't feel the same, right? It's, it's, it, it's very unsatisfying. Um, yeah. Yep. Yeah. And like, and there are studies that say it's not the same, you know, um, and, and why we need it. But, you know, I want to bring it back to this idea of also, um, I mean, it's, there's the other anthropologist part of me that's like, this. it's also so fascinating to me. Um, like when Adam and I met years ago, um, in the before times and the very, very before times. And, um, you know, he was definitely like, in a part of a community that was all on IRC. Yep. Right? And so then I was like, I guess I'm going to have to enter into this. There's this person that I'm in a relationship with who has all these other relationships. Like, what is this about? And it was really interesting to me. But I found that we had a different protocol. Like, as soon as there were platforms where I could feel like it was a more visual, personal connection, I connected with those people before mm -hmm. Because I was there, I was like, okay, this is fine, this is fine. But they're just those are not they're people, but they're theoretical people. So um, it's just like so when Facebook happened, and I was like, oh my gosh, I'm gonna get to see this person's pictures. Like I is yeah. a person that I've been talking to, and it was really important for me. Um, so as we come back to thinking about diversity and inclusion, so there's diversity of thought. Okay, you can get diversity of thought with people who. Um, from the in the way that we think about uh, inclusion on a on a social level, you can have diversity of thought in a very homogenous from a racial, gender, age, you know, perspective. The thing, the reason I bring up like the visual piece and and conferences, and you all have brought it up too, is that um, one of the challenges I think your industry has, the bigger you know sort of tech industry has, and um, especially that those that have been so virtual is that your norms are around sort of like lack of visual, you know, we could have had this whole conversation with none of our faces and I think it would be very different. And I think people who are watching it would have be engaging with it in a different way. Um, because I know that it's actually important, like who I am, like what, what this looks like is actually an important part of the dialogue. Um, it's not the most important, but it's important. Um, and that it's a sort of special challenge to shift that culture because, um, you really can't know unless you ask people, like you don't have a sense of what at least the sort of visible diversity is uh -huh. of the groups that you're in. It's hard to know when you don't see people. Yeah. Um, and you know, there's the argument that like, well, what it, what, what you see shouldn't matter. I, of course it shouldn't, but like it does. 
Okay, for all the reasons sure, that sure. we talked about at the very beginning, like <laughs> our entire consciousness has been built on this matter. Yeah, but right? I mean, I, I've been reading like, so like uh, I always talk about these two books, uh, Sapiens and the same author wrote, I think it's Homo Deus. But like when I read back through all of this information, it actually is like a very much a uh, survival mechanism or was like Absolutely. judging somebody judging somebody not just by like their appearance but by their behavior by their uh posture but you know is this a threat is it not a threat and when you go back through the history of time very much makes sense that yes it shouldn't matter but it does because it is like it, you talked about the lizard brain like it is very ingrained in us it's just as a survival like as a yeah me mechanism that we we've got built in yeah well our brain our brain is there's a reason that we are um, a uh, some would argue if we're talking about like the you know systems collapse like that we have been such a a species that's been so good at survival, you know um, here on Earth, and you know people have feelings about the the level of our survival and are we creating collapse right but. Um, like, are, are we edge? Are we pushing? Are we pushing out the diversity of our like ecological system? But evolution has given us this incredibly well-tuned, you know, survival brain, right? Our subconscious brain, and then you know we got all this stuff up in the front, all our frontal matter for long-term thinking and risk assessment and higher-order functioning. You know, like biologically, we like biologically, our brains um, are what is it? It's kind of like we have um, more shoes than are useful for us. You know, yes. <laughs> I like having it, but sometimes they get in the way. Okay. <laughs> sometimes they're going to weigh you down. And yes, like there, it's really important to understand like human biology in this way and then understand how we also justify justify creating systems that exclude people because it's it does it it feels like self-preservation and so our work is again just like you said Ken you gotta stop you know st there's a there's a a, a, con a concept around this that's called the ladder of inference in in this work that our brain goes we have these very strong automatic tapes right that's like the black is bad and white is good Nobody is like, very rarely is anybody saying like, oh, I see a black person. Hmm, I think that I, how am I gonna calculate the goodness or badness of this person or my, per like, it, that's not what happens. It happens automatically, right? And so our job is to pause and go, okay, is that real? And you sort of, you have to read, a lot of this is also from an individual level, I guess I'll say, these conversations are also about retraining our brain. So as you think about like, what's my work to do as a person? Because maybe you're not in a position to do, a, to affect systemic change. Like maybe you're not, maybe you're not in the right job position. Maybe it's not the right time in your company or whatever the group is that you're in. Um, because you would waste yourself on trying to change a system that's not waiting to change. There's always time to do your own work. And your own work is 
reading books, watching some Ken Burns documentaries. There's great series on, you know, it's all, there's a lot of media out there that is mm -hmm. easy for you to access. Um, and it can be educational, but it also doesn't have to be. There are plenty of media out there that are that have very different representations, particularly of people of color and women that are not like what you're going to get on broadcast television. You know, that's not the dominant norm. So, like, who, who cares? Go watch it. Go watch Insecure on HBO. Go watch, you know, Pose. If you haven't watched Pose, go watch some things that are not for you. You know, but they're from other for other people. That's how you can broaden yourself. And that will give you new ideas and ways to engage in this work, not just personally, but also professionally. We can all do that work. We can yeah. all do it. And when COVID-19 is over, travel. Because traveling <laughs> to other places and seeing how other people live has been one of the best things. Like uh, Seth and I have brought our kids along for that very reason. We're like, look, not everybody lives like you. They don't all have the same, like what's right and wrong, cultural you know, right. values. They're, they're just different. It's, and it, yeah, understanding that's not right and wrong. It's different. It's so. different. People build systems like I, I always like to when I was doing a lot of work with science folks, you know, it's like human beings are very good at building systems to survive. So, you know, we have all built systems to survive in the environments that we're in and survival techniques vary, you know, from place to place. And if they don't evolve, then they become non-survival systems, <laughs> you know. Um, but this is a system, the system that we are in uh, right now in this country actually requires, I would say that it for it to be a healthy system, it actually requires for its participants, for the pool of participants, in this case, it's, I'm not going to even say citizens, the people who are in this system, they need to be able to fully participate in it, which means participating in the education system, participating in professional environments, participating in its economic activities. They need to be able to equitably, not equally, equitably participate for this system to keep going. You know why this country has grown and became like a world economic force? Because it's only been through waves of inclusion. Like prosperity has only come when policies have included more people and given them access to education, property, finding, you know, financial success and well-being. This particular system is predicated on that. And yeah. so I think about it as um, if we really want to get functional about it, because there's the more to me, the moral argument, it's not that it's boring, but it's clear. Like it's clear that we have to have equitable and, and equal rights whatever the human being is in this country needs to have equal rights. That's to me, that's the more right. Yeah. But how do we get there? If people are always wanting to tease it apart, it was like, if they cannot participate, it's about participation. If you cannot participate at um, and bring your powers to it, then our system is missing fuel <laughs> that yeah, it yeah. You know, and people can have all a lot of feel, and I have a lot of feelings about the system, about whether I think it's a good system or not. But, but objectively, 
it's a system that requires a lot, everybody to be generating energy in it. And when yeah. we exclude, we're, we're not letting people, you know, we're not getting that energy. Um, and so whatever your moral feelings are around it, I think that's another pathway just from a very practical perspective. Your company won't survive. Our country doesn't survive when we start excluding. Yeah. You know. Well, in the beginning of the episode, you said America is about, well, we equate America with, with freedom, with equity. And um, yeah. I think that that's one of the benefits that we have in trying to improve things is that, yeah, we're America. We can have the freedom to make the choice that things are broken and we can improve it. That's not the case everywhere in the world, but we have that option. So yeah, I, I've loved it. By the way, loved this conversation. This has been, this might be, sorry to everybody else who's coming on the podcast. It might be one of my favorites. So this is, yeah. this is a really good discussion. Good. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I mean, this, this has been really good, even from just like a self-reflection perspective. Right. And, you know, and, and I, I think that's where it starts, but I, I really like that, uh, Laura, that you just brought up about how the system doesn't get better without inclusion. Right. That, that, and that's what I'm taking from it is, yeah, like whatever we do, we want to include everyone so that we can get better. We don't, we get those views, we get the we get the perspective that we need to, to continually make things better. Right. Um, And and that goes from a security perspective as well as an inclusion diversity perspective, because if we don't have those voices, we don't have that perspective in there. uh, Like we don't see the new research. We don't see what potentially could be impactful and change things for the industry as a whole. And, you know, so we'd be missing out. Yeah, we'd be missing out. So, um, and I know, yeah, I want to be cognizant of your time too, Laura, because, you know, we've been going, we're about a half over hour over what we originally said. And um, that's how you know it's good. It is right. And like, we don't, we don't know where the time goes. This, this happens to us on a weekly basis, but um, do you have any final thoughts as far as, you know, we've talked about the uh, implicit, um, test. We've talked about, you know, all sorts of things, any closing thoughts where people should look for, Hey, how do you, you know, start self-introspection or whatever, um, as far as moving the conversation forward? Yeah. I, there's a website that's called teaching tolerance, teaching tolerance.org. I think is, is just a great resource. It's mainly made for educators, but it's got some really great activities and like readings and stuff. And again, these are sort of made for students. So they're also very educational. Um, And, you know, the other thing I'd say for you all, um, for your colleagues, you know, as you're in your professional spaces and your people are bringing up or you all are are discussing and um, getting into these conversations that it's okay for, it should be frustrating. Otherwise you're not really getting into it. It should be frustrating. It should be uncomfortable, but it should never be without grace. So you all need to give each other the space to be wrong and to learn, right? 
you it's so hard and it's not just kindness kindness means you don't really get into it but i would like for people to extend each other grace that it's okay to make mistakes it's okay to disagree but we want to create space that people can learn together great yeah this is uh, yeah I, I mean that's a good good point right is just because someone says something or has an opinion doesn't mean that they can't learn and they can't change right like i would hope that people give me that opportunity as well right even when they call me out on something um so like yeah you grace, can't expect change yeah. yeah grace is also side channeling your friend who's being defensive uh, being like hey 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 yeah <laughs> i need you to maybe back off a little bit, a little my bit. Friend. Yeah. You're something yeah. for you. so but it's about it's about remembering that we're we need to be in this together so how are you bringing people in you're not just negotiating language it's not technical yeah it's very people-based so mm -hmm. cool. yeah. well well good we'll continue the conversation um on online i guess on twitter you know of all places oh. right <laughs> Or on Slack. No, we uh, have a Slack. <laughs> yes, yes. People are welcome to come in and join the Slack community. We we love the conversations that go on there. So um, please, if you've got questions, reach out. Uh, you know, yeah, and, and I mean, we can direct to Laura. It sounds like your Twitter is not too active, so you know, maybe we'll 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 reach out through Adam or other ways if we can. Um, if there are questions that pop up, yeah. did want to reach out to you directly? Is there a mechanism that they could do that? Sure, they could. Um, they can do it. They can actually go to my Twitter. I mean, I, I monitor it. I don't post a lot. So if you want to reach out to me through um, Twitter, which uh, my handle is at with um, I will. I'm definitely happy to um, hear from folks there. Um, if you have specific questions. Um, so I'll keep an eye out on it and do my best okay. um, to engage with folks there or I'll hear it from you all through Adam. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Yep. We'll make sure that it's posted with the episode. And again, we appreciate the time. We appreciate the perspective and, you know, giving us the the time to talk through this because it, yeah, I mean, we feel like it's important obviously, and we're glad to, to have that discussion. So. Well, I want to say thank you for you all saying yes, you know, reaching out, taking a risk to have this conversation. Um, I think it's really great modeling and I hope that more of these will continue to happen in your community. Yeah. We're trying. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, uh, thanks everybody for joining us today. Uh, Ken, any final thoughts? No, just thank you for coming on and thank you to audience members who uh, watched or listened on the platforms. All right. We'll talk to everybody next week. Thanks. Bye.